Welcome to the Dry Ground Project podcast. Our goal is to create a global community of professionals caring for young adults aged out of orphanages and foster care. That's what we do. I'm your host, Callie. And I'm your co-host, Amanda. Welcome to the Dry Ground Project podcast. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to the Dry Ground Project podcast. Today we have a very exciting conversation for you. We are talking to Megan. She is the executive director of Respire Haiti, which is a really cool nonprofit working in Haiti, except we learned not working in Haiti right now because not many people are working in Haiti right now because of the political situation and the unrest down there. So here we go. Are you ready for this, Amanda? I, I hope so. I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's talk to Megan. Hi, Megan. Again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, could you just introduce yourself to our audience first of all and tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm Megan Boudreau, and I am the founder and executive director of Respiray Haiti and also a member of the Haiti Family Care Network. Nice. And how did you become those things? How did you get to where you are today? <laughs> tell us a little bit more about your background. And um, I know you've written a book about your journey. So um, yeah. yeah, just tell us how you got here. Sure, sure. Um, yes, it's a, it's a really kind of long and crazy journey. But the short version is um, I used to work for a, um, a hospital doing kind of just marketing, nothing to do with any of the medical aspect. And they came into the office one day and they said, Hey, we need somebody to go to Haiti. We have this like small mission that we support and we want to go check on it. And, you know, no one volunteered and nobody wanted to go. And the lady walked out and she came back the next day, asked again. And then on the third day, I call it being voluntold. She just kind of was like, Hey, you get to go. And I was the youngest person in the office. And I was, you know, had no kids, wasn't married. So I think, you know, I was kind of chosen to go to Haiti with a group of people. And I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm going to Haiti. So um, I went to Haiti and it was overwhelming. It was a couple of months after the earthquake. There was just a lot of stuff going on. And I came back to the States and I was just like, this is, this is crazy. I'm not really sure that, you know, I could go back. And then, um, you know, once again, had to go back and, ironic as it is, um, we were riding in a bus and our bus broke down at the bottom of a hill. So we all kind of like walked up to the top of this hill and it was this, you know, beautiful place. And there was only one little tree. And I sat under this tree and watched all these kids, you know, playing and thought, man, somebody needs to come here. Like (laughs) all these kids should be in school. Like, why is this happening during the day? And um, did not ever think that it was going to be me. And fast forward a couple of months and I was moving to Haiti, trying to figure out what was my role in all of this. And, um, that's kind of how Respray got started. Very organic and kind of just, you know, coincidental. It reminds me a little bit of your story, Amanda. Do you feel the similarities? Yeah, I definitely uh, hear the similarities. And I think that it is probably a lot of people in our positions where we saw a thing happening. We thought, oh, wow, someone should do something about that. We prayed about it. And then God was like, "Uh, guess what? (laughs) Since you saw it, (laughs) it's you. Uh, So yeah, I definitely resonate with that, that story. Yeah. And neither of you necessarily wanted to go do these things, but here, here we all are. Oh no. Yeah. I was not in a position to think like, oh yes, I, this is what I'm going to do and create and all this. No, uh, uh-uh, not at all. I just was like, oh my goodness, somebody else. Why am I doing this? This is crazy. 
Yeah, for sure. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your organization, your mission, vision, goals, exactly what you do? Down sure, in yeah. So Respire Haiti exists to um, encourage, educate, and empower vulnerable children, um, rest of X and orphans. We lark, work a lot with rest of X, which it's, it literally translates to um, reste is to stay and a vec is with, and it translates to child slaves or domestic servants that live with these families that, that are not their own. Um, and it's a really, you know, it's a dangerous situation in Haiti, especially because it's just kind of like accepted by society and it's a cultural norm to have rest of X that that became our focus early on because um, the area that we were in just had a lot of rest of X. And so we started initially with a feeding program and just, you know, all of these children were coming and we got to know them and realized they weren't in school. And so in um, 2011, we started a school with 75 kids and now we have over 600 students um, and we do um, medical care for them as well. We have just regular, um, you know, triaging medical care, but then we also have occupational and physical therapy and we have mental health as well. Um, and then we've got sports programs. We have soccer and tennis and then, um, you know, numerous other programs that we do. And so it's kind of just been, you know, a domino effect of kind of seeing the need and then making sure that, you know, we're holistically helping our kids. And so, um, you know, it, it started off like just a little bitty feeding program and then it's grown to, we have over 140 staff that run it. And, you know, currently I'll, I'm sure we'll get to this part, but currently I'm in the States because of the situation in Haiti. And so it's been a really kind of a whirlwind, you know, last 10 years. <laughs> Amazing. And it sounds like you're doing a really good job meeting all those practical needs. Um, I, I saw you speak I found a YouTube video earlier. You were talking about the school, talking about kids working. Um, and you said it was really common for the kids like helping out around the school to find their identity and their work and what they were doing. Um, but your um, vision, I guess, is for them to find their true identity and their true father and their savior. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that and how faith plays into your organization and what you do and what you believe? For sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these kids have come from really difficult backgrounds. And um, when we first started, almost 70% were um, living in a rest of X situation and all of them would be considered just, you know, in vulnerable situations. And so um, initially when we started, you know, there's a very, you know, large like mix between um, just religious beliefs in Haiti, whether it's voodoo or Catholicism or um, just Christianity in, in general. And so what we found is, you know, us having a Christian school, there were a lot of expectations on what we were supposed to do and what we weren't. And so um, it, it started to be a little bit challenging because even culturally in Haiti, most of the schools use corporal punishment. If they don't do their homework, they're hitting them, they're making them kneel, they're, you know, doing all of these things. And so what we began to realize and, and train our teachers to do is that like, um, you know, when they're coming to school, it's a safe place. They're not safe where they are at their houses or they don't feel safe. And so if we're trying to help these people understand and understand these children, understand their identity in Christ and understand um, just 
who, who loves them. We can't have them come into a place where if they do one little thing wrong, that they're punished for it. You know, that's just, that's not how we're loved. And so it took a lot of time and a lot of, um, you know, prayer and training and discussion for our teachers and staff to really understand that, you know, when our kids are coming to school, they want to be there because they feel safe and feeling safe means being protected and being loved and not being hit and not being abused. And so um, that started to change the dynamic and it went really quickly from us having to like beg our kids to come to school, like, you know, please come to school to us having a 99% retention rate every year because the kids wanted to be there. And so us kind of pouring into our kids and the teachers pouring into their kids and showing them that relationship and showing them how much um, they love them. It was very easy for them to associate that and to understand, okay, this is, you know, however much we love you, God loves you even more. Like this is not us just trying to, um, you know, give you a safe place, like a tangible safe place. It's more than that. You know, a lot of these kids are fatherless and they don't understand what it's like to have an adult treat them with kindness and respect. And so it was very it's hard because we had to start with little stepping stones in order to kind of build that in them. Yeah. And to build trust. That's a really important thing that we do around here. Um, but it, it sounds like you're doing a really good job sharing the gospel with them while meeting those practical needs. So how did you handle the cultural transition with the teachers? Right. So did you just get really lucky and find teachers that had the same values that you were trying to build with the school? Um, was it a slow process? How did that work to be able to build a safe space and to get them on board? Yeah, it was, it was hard. I I'll be honest. It was hard. I mean, it was, it was, I was lucky because I was there, I was living there and I was able to, you know, be in the day to day. And especially the first few years of Haiti, I was living in Haiti. I was um, in the process of adopting my two girls. So I never left. I was there all the time. So I was able to try and, you know, be that support and, and I was witnessing and being aware and it kind of really helped for us to, um, to do, you know, activities that would show them, you know, what, what it was like for them to uh, be talking to kids in a, in a demeaning way or whatever it might be, you know, I mean, just simple activities of like, okay, you know, if you're going to tell, if you're going to shame these kids, if you're going to embarrass them, what does that really do to them? And so we would bring in people from all over to try and train and teach. And it didn't really take that long for them to understand, you know, trauma and guilt and shame is, is not going to build this relationship that you want with these kids. And so, you know, there were definite things where I found myself like in our contract being like no pinching, pushing, pulling, you know, like having to be really specific, but at the same time too, I, you, you can't, you can put as much as you want in a contract, but if the heart of the issue in the heart of the person is not changed, then nothing's going to change. And so, um, you know, it really, it was, a, it was a journey. It was not something that happened quickly. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, cultural change, right? It, it's from the inside out and it's a slow process, but it's, it's cool to see that transformation kind of arriving and, and being present in the, the school. That's something really special. Yeah. And we really kind of had to bring it down to like the generational level. Like there's so much 
you know, all over the world, but especially in Haiti, there's so much generational bondage. There's so much generational um, issues. And, you know, we would talk to them and say, okay, well, I'm sure this is how your parents treated you and how your grandparents treated your parents. You know, did you like when this happened to you? Okay. Do you know there's another way? And a lot of times when there's such a, a stuck thing in culture and it's not a positive thing, it's because there's just not been another way offered. And so that's kind of what we tried to focus on because, you know, I've always, since the very beginning, I'm like, I'm working myself out of a job. I love living in Haiti but one day I'm not going to be there. It was sooner than we thought because of COVID, but, um, you know, it, what's going to happen when I'm not there, like holding hands and trying to say, this is right. This is wrong. You know, I need to have people in place that have that, um, ability and discernment and that God's really placed in leadership to do that. And, and so we were lucky to be able to grow our leaders in that way. And we did, we found some really amazing people. That's awesome. And you're interrupting that cycle that you're talking about, like, I hope that the kids that you've worked with will grow up and have healthy families. Um, But maybe what is the situation for these vulnerable children that don't have intervention? What happens to them in Haiti? Yeah. I mean, and that's a hard, it's a, that's a really hard um, question, especially right now um, with what's happening in Haiti. Um, For those that are not aware, um, there's just, there's a ton of, violence, gang violence, unrest, um, inflation. I mean, everything that you can imagine that could go wrong in a country is going wrong right now. Um, School was supposed to start back in September. Um, It's November, it still hasn't started. It's not safe for kids to walk to school. Um, There's just cities being overrun with gangs. There's been a lot of kidnappings and killings and it's just really, really, really scary. And, you know, this started in 2019 and then COVID happened in 2020 and 2021. And then this kind of got worse again last year. And so when you look at it, um, where we're at, just speaking from our um, school and our area is, I mean, these kids haven't been in school in over three years, you know, and although, you know, we've tried, we've tried to do, you know, virtual school, we've tried to do all of these different things, even right now, um, without disclosing too much, we're, we're doing school right now, um, the way that we can, but it's still really challenging because it's not, it's not normal. And so when you have all of these children that are in such vulnerable situations. And then you have roads that are closed off and, you know, gas right now is like $25 a gallon. I mean, how are you getting anywhere? You can't. And so we're stuck with doing house visits via phone call. Like, oh, hi, how are you? Like that's, it's just, it's really impractical and it's dangerous. And so to be honest, um, this is kind of where many organizations are is what do you do? What is the best way to check on these children, to support these kids? Because I've got 600 children that I haven't seen since this past summer and it's dangerous. And it's really something I think that, you know, there's not a, a, you know, best way to handle this because Haiti is its kind of own animal. But honestly, um, there's a lot right now. There's a lot of, you know, everything from malnutrition to, um, you know, sexual abuse and violence that's happening because of the state of Haiti. And it's really heartbreaking. Are you okay? <laughs> I know. I'm like, sorry, I just unloaded all of that. Is this a therapy session or a podcast? It sounds so hard. <laughs> It's really, I mean, it is, it's very, it's, it, it's just sad. And because Haiti is, you know, where it is and it's 
location. It's, it's always kind of like the black sheep of so many things. And um, yeah, a lot of people are struggling. A lot of um, Americans, there's been this mass exodus of foreigners because it's not safe or because, you know, their, their organization can't run. There's been a lot of organizations that have closed down. And then there's just a lot of, you know, kids that, that are just sitting and waiting for something to change. I didn't realize the situation was so bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have read and kind of followed along with it. I have some other friends that have done ministries in, in Haiti. And so I was hearing from them and their newsletters of just how hard things were. So in that way, I feel like, you know, especially kind of from, you know, popular news sources in the West and even here in Europe, like we're not hearing about it very regularly um, in, in European news. How do you advocate for, you know, the black sheep of the, of the family, you know, how do you uh, give a voice to what's happening and, and prioritize, you know, communicating that this is important and we should care about this. You know, what does that, what does that look like? Just so people know, right? I mean, and, and honestly, I wish I had a really like formulated answer, but the truth of the matter is, I mean, we don't know, you know, I mean, there's, there were calls for, you've got calls for, you know, there to be, you know, some sort of intervening from the UN or from the United States. And then you've got these people that are like, absolutely not. Like they've already done all this colonization. (laughs) Look where we're at. So you've got both sides of it, but at the same time, there's just, there's nothing happening right now. And that's a dangerous thing to happen. So like, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I know that not having a government, not having free and fair elections, um, that is a huge thing. Um, the last time my husband and I were in Haiti was last summer and we flew out. We almost got stuck in the country and we flew out. And then a week later, the president was assassinated. And so, you know, it was kind of just like, there's there's so many different elements that are ha- happening. Um, but ultimately, this is what always happens in these sort of disaster crises, like situations is the children are the ones who suffer. There's no school happening. You know, those who had feeding programs or family support or mental health support or whatever, you know, all of that is kind of like dissipating. And, you know, even with us, we're not located in the heart of where a lot of this is happening yet. Our numbers of therapy we've been able to provide. I mean, we run special needs programs, um, in our school and at our medical clinic. And we've got tons of um, individuals that can't even get to their therapy sessions. Like it's very challenging. And so, um, you know, you can shift course and you can try and figure out, okay, how can we meet the needs? How can we come to you? How can we do this? Um, But it's still not, you know, solving the overarching problem of Haiti needs to change. And, you know, there needs to be some sort of miraculous thing that happens. And God can do it. Like when these crazy things happen, it's a good reminder that he's in charge. And we, I mean, what can you even do other than draw near to him and pray? That's what our staff has been doing is just saying, you know what we can't. And, and I just, you know, I was laughing at um, our, I was telling my kids, my older kids who um, I have three adopted um, children from Haiti and they're here in the States with me. And we were talking about, you know, the state of Haiti and um, long story short, we came to visit in March of 2020 for a fundraiser. We were supposed to be here for a week. Um, They packed a little carry-on bag, a little rolly suitcase, and then the airport shut down and they've never been back to Haiti. 
Um, and so, you know, there was, a, there's a lot, there's a lot of them not having closure and stuff. So they ask a lot of questions and, you know, but they find it funny. And they said this yesterday, um, when I was talking about the fact that, you know, oh, we can't get to our, you know, uniforms because they're in a different city and our school director keeps saying, okay, well, we got to get the uniforms. And I'm, <laughs> I was like, he is so set on getting these uniforms and yet we're not even having school and we don't have our kids like, you know, coming to school yet. And my oldest son goes, yeah, but like, that's the faith of the Haitian people is they want it because they believe that something's going to happen. Something's going to change. And, you know, I'm like, he's right. You know, that's what happens is they just keep moving forward. And they're just such a resilient people that it's like, you know, the more that I'm looking at the practical of like, oh gosh, we're not having school, you know, Gracia, our, our director of our school is like, I need to have everything ready for when it does open. And so I just appreciate that about them. And I think that's one good way that their faith encourages me being over here. you. Is there anything else you want to tell us about the situation? It feels so heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. No, I mean, just be praying for Haiti. I mean, Haiti needs some sort of change. And, you know, last a couple of weeks ago, actually, we were watching um, some resolution that was brought to the UN, you know, to vote on on sanctions or some something to try and help Haiti. And with the way that the gangs are running the country, they're, they're literally, um, you know, starving people from everything, from education, from food, from gas, from jobs, from work. It's, it's really tough. Great. We'll try to link some information and resources in our show notes and turning to a lighter topic. I'm also going to link your Instagram because I've loved following you lately. Um, I think you're using your time in uh, the States very well and advocating on Instagram. Um, I really liked the reels you did when you, you got into a fight or let's say a disagreement with someone who called you delusional for comments you made related to placing children in families. Do you want to tell that story or explain what happened? Oh my gosh. Yes. I really, I, my, my husband like thinks this is the funniest thing because <clears throat> you guys love this as women, um, you know, because uh, if you behave back, as a woman, who do they email your husband? <laughs> so my husband got this email from someone because I had done an interview and I talked about orphanages being institutions because they are. And um, just how I talked about the fact that there's just limitations in orphanages. Like it, you can't holistically care for a child in an orphanage. It does not meet their needs. Um, and then he received an email saying that um, it was very harmful or hurtful and um um, what was this other word? I can't even remember, but he was very frustrated with my response, talking bad about orphanages because he has an orphanage that he runs, um, very, very well. And it meets the needs of all of the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yes, um, my husband did what he always does and just forwarded it to me with a little eye roll and was like, here you go. <laughs> so I read it and then I responded, um, like I always do with just some facts and some, you know, pieces of information and also just kind of attached some articles and some statistics. And then I was met with, thanks for your opinion. Um, but this is not the case in Haiti. And I just kind of thought it was laughable. So I started using, um, and realizing, you know, this is what a lot of people 
probably believe and they get stuck on, you know, well, this is my orphanage and I have support for it. And here is, here's what's going on. And so um, the ironic thing is, is within a few reels, people started messaging me because they kind of figured out what orphanage it was. And, um, you know, as I was sitting here, like educating, saying, you know, yes, I understand that you might have some kids that don't have um, you know, living parents, but there's other options besides orphanages. And I was sitting here trying to um, say that. And I got some really like, I don't know, difficult insider information that most of the kids in his orphanage do have families and that some of these parents actually tried to come to the orphanage to get their, their children back and were denied. And so then that kind of got me on this like extra kick of like, okay, not only are you um, wrong in your thinking, which I feel like is fair to say, because that's not an opinion of, you know, how children should live, but you're also neglecting and denying that like these kids actually do have families. And I think it gets really dangerous when, um, especially Americans or foreigners get to decide when they think poverty is, um, too much for a child. And I think that's kind of, that was the start of these Insta reels is like, okay, let's, let's kind of just nitpick this one by one. <laughs> yeah. That's a great outlet for expressing your frustration, I guess. Yeah, and creative expression, right? Like there's an element to that. Um, but I think it brings up this point that we're seeing in, in uh, childcare and orphan care in like organizations with younger leaders is we're not looking to put we're not trying to find a place to put a kid. We're trying to look at an entire system and say, the system doesn't work. It clearly hasn't. So how do we change that system? And I think that that's where like, we're having this clash between older organizations and younger organizations and, and interacting. Like we all want to, to help the orphan. How we approach that is, is quite different. The truth of the matter is, is like, this is, you know, especially in Haiti and really all over the world, you know, 80 to 92% of kids in orphanages have living parents. And it's just a, a situation where, you know, in, in Haiti, um, you know, supporting them to go to school would be a huge thing. And I, it, it's like the most heartbreaking thing in our area. When I first moved there, there was very few, um, you know, orphanages in our area. And then, you know, got to be kind of more of the place to be for Americans. And within a couple of years, there were six American run orphanages that were built. And it was heartbreaking because I knew for a fact that a lot of those kids that were in those orphanages had families. And it just broke my heart because I'm like, it's literally like the saying, like, if you build it, they will come because these parents love their kids, but they also want their children to have an education and have healthcare and have food. And so they look at this building and they go, oh, this is so nice. Like, I love my child so much. I'm going to put them here and have them, you know, be educated because I can't afford to give them the same education. And, you know, watching that for years and years, you know, I've been told I'm a little harsh sometimes, or I'm a little bit, um, opinionated. And the reality is, is like, no, I'm just passionate because I've seen so many children ripped out of their families. I've seen so many Americans, well-meaning, well-intentioned Americans come into Haiti 
and decide, oh, this child needs this place because their family can't provide what they need. Instead of looking at it going, okay, like God calls us to help the children that, you know, are, are we're looking at in a way that is going to preserve their relationship with their family and is going to, you know, break these cycles of detachment. And, you know, I really think that um, it just kind of lit a fire and I'm just, you know, really passionate about, you know, making sure people understand the harm that's done when you take a child out of a family. And also when you have a child that might not have parents and you put them in an orphanage with, you know, 50 other kids, like, that's just not the way that our brains were meant to, to, to grow. And I think that the biggest thing that, you know, I see, and I think I did this, I did a last reel. I don't know if y'all saw it whenever I was like, <laughs> one thing that needs to change. And it was like, um, it also had to do with that email, but it was like black and brown babies calling, you know, white men, daddy, like that is something that is very common in Haiti and around the world is when you've got these Americans and then they make, you know, have these, this attachment with these kids. And it's a one-way thing because they, they love these children. And then they're, they call them, you know, mom and dad. And I'm like, okay, so in what country and in what place do children only see their mom and dad every, you know, couple of weeks or every, you know, twice a year or, and it's created this really unhealthy thing in Haiti. And, you know, now look at Haiti, there's no Americans coming in. So what are these children thinking, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it just brings up the, I think we, we all share a common mindset here of like looking at generations of, of impact and care and knowing like, you know, this isn't sustainable because when crisis happens, what happens? Like, you know, and who's, who's left behind and who do they go to? Right. It's, it's about building that sustainability so that you know, true lasting impact can, can happen. Absolutely. So I love that you're advocating for people to become educated about these topics. Um, what else would you say to, I guess, our audience out there, we're hoping to be a community of people like us working with youth who are growing up in this, these various systems, aging out of these various systems. So do you have any words for us or for people who are doing this work? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be discouraging because, um, you know, I was, <laughs> I, I was talking to somebody the other day and it was like, we helped um, this um, organization that had 30 children in an orphanage and they um, reunited most of them with their families and they were able to support um, you know, a couple of kids that did not have living parents, but they found situations, kinship care that was good. And, and then within a week, I got an email from somebody saying, oh, this organization is just opened an orphanage for 50 kids. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it feels like, you know, two steps forward, five steps backward. And um, I think that that's the thing is like, you know, continuing to educate and advocate on a broad scale, like that's the only way that this is going to change if not, it's like, we can be so like tunnel vision and just like focus on this one thing and say like, oh, we need to, you know, hit up all these orphanages and explain why this is not okay. And that's a good thing to do, but also we can't forget about all of these other people that we don't know, are they planning to start an orphanage? What are they planning to do? And so for us um, individually, like in Haiti, what we try and do is as soon as we get wind of 
an organization thinking about either supporting or starting an orphanage, we try and give them information, you know, um, about, hey, this is why this isn't a good thing. And, and here's some other options that you can support these same kids, the same community. Like, what does the community actually need? You know, so that's kind of our hope. It's a really good question to ask. It's something we do. We have Americans wanting to send money directly to kids and we really discourage that one. Then we try to educate them on why. So yeah, similar, yeah. similar missions. There's just a lot of um, education that still needs to, to be put out there. And I think that we're, we're moving in a good direction and we keep finding people that have the same thoughts and opinions as, as we do. And I think the more that we can kind of band together and pray for each other and, and get on the same page and like, you know, say, yes, that's the same thing here. We need to stop this. I think that that's really, really great. I know I've had conversations with other executive directors that have seen things differently and they're like, oh, but that change is a little too hard. And I said, well, like, it's not for you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, uh, and so I guess just here's to the women that misbehave and (laughs) say what we're thinking. Um, But yeah, like, you know, it's not about us and it's not about our position. It's about, you know, this bigger impact. And if we keep our eyes on us, then it's doomed to fail. Absolutely. Yes. Phew. We're back. (laughs) How many times did you say that during that interview? Just Phew. We need a few count. I I will confess, I am a recovering journalist. I don't often read world news. I Mm. did not know enough about the situation in Haiti. I need to educate myself. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's been um, really, really horrible. And I mean, that's just the news that we're getting. Right. And who knows what's happening that that isn't being covered or kind of getting out there so it's it's really heartbreaking yeah and she is amazing I love talking to Megan oh yeah I would talk to Megan all the time if I could yeah Megan if you're listening (laughs) please talk to us (laughs) again be our friend yeah no it was a great conversation and it was great to just hear other people that are um passionate about speaking the truth and even when it's kind of going against these old ways of thinking I think that's something we need more of in in the world in general, but especially working with vulnerable people, right? You have to be ready to. Yeah. I think the people in our community, the people who are listening, are on the front lines. They're seeing this. So if, if we're not speaking up, if we're not saying what's true, then how can we ever affect change? Right. Yeah, exactly. So thanks for listening to our conversation with Megan, and we'll see you in the next episode here on The Drag Round Project. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. The Dry Ground Project is hosted and produced by us, Callie Newton and Amanda Bannister. Music and production support by Aaron Newton. Sound production and design by Jonathan Nevis. Find us online at thedrygroundproject.org, on Instagram at thedrygroundproject, and on Twitter at drygroundproj. See you next time.